Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. So House Speaker Mike Johnson is between the same rock and the same hard place as Kevin McCarthy about keeping the government open. That never ends well, but maybe it'll work out this time? It's Wednesday, January 17th, and this is Here and Now, Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, red tape and what it really means to cut it. A little later, we'll hear why environmentalists in Louisiana want more EPA controls on projects storing carbon dioxide underground. And... The Supreme Court could reverse a long-standing precedent on how much power federal agencies have. The Solicitor General in the federal government's brief in this case described overturning Chevron as something that would create a convulsive shock in the legal system. And I don't think that is hyperbole or overstated. But first, remember that government shutdown everyone was worried about before the holidays? Well, the deadline is this Friday, and they're going to kick the can a little farther down the road looks like till March now. Meanwhile, there's another unresolved spending issue in Washington. President Biden is hosting top congressional leaders today at the White House. He's trying to reach a deal with lawmakers that would combine aid for Ukraine and Israel, along with funding and possible policy changes for the U.S.-Mexico border. NPR's Mara Liasson has been covering this. Here's her conversation with Robin Young. Thank you for jumping in with us because this gets netty fast. Yes, it can get confusing. (laughs) All right. So the president wants to keep aid going for Ukraine as it continues to defend itself against Russia's invasion. Remind us why that's being linked to the situation at the southern U.S. border. Because President Biden really wants aid for Ukraine. Republicans know it. And the best leverage they have is to hold up aid to Ukraine unless... Biden agrees to more border funding, more border policy changes. Biden is very determined to help Ukraine because he doesn't want to give Russian President Vladimir Putin an advantage in that war, which is what would happen if American military aid stopped. So Republicans say, as a price for their support for Ukraine aid, the president has to agree to much of their requests on the border. Now, the president said he's willing to make concessions. He says he sees the problems at the border. He's getting pressure from Democratic mayors and governors in blue states who are also having an influx of asylum seekers. It's not just red state, border state Republican governors. Well, it, it, but that willingness that you just mentioned sounds like a deal is possible. What are the sticking points? The sticking, there are a lot of sticking points, but some of them are deep divisions between Republicans. Senate Republicans see a deal. They say, this is the best we're going to get. This is even better than if Trump were president, because then Democrats would never agree to a deal. House Republicans say they are only willing to accept their hardline immigration bill. 
That bill is a non-starter in the Senate. So you've got deep divisions between Senate and House Republicans. There are even questions about whether House Republicans want any kind of deal that would hand Biden a win on this issue, because right now immigration is a very, very good issue for Republicans. And the House Speaker is under a lot of pressure here, especially from his right flank, and we don't know what he will agree to, if anything. Well, and talk more uh, about President Biden, as you said, willing maybe to compromise. Talk more about the politics for President Biden. Well, he wants to get that Ukraine funding. He's had some pressure from his left not to agree to too much of what the Republicans want, but he has said he is willing to make concessions. Yeah. Former President Donald Trump still has a lot of Republican support in Congress. Uh, Immigration, his top issue. We know he doesn't like Ukraine very much. Uh, What role is he playing here from the sidelines? Well, that's an excellent question. We know he wants to close the border. We know he doesn't like Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky at all. As a matter of fact, his first impeachment was about pressuring Zelensky to dig up dirt on Joe Biden. Um, So he has a longstanding animus to Zelensky, longstanding positive feelings for Russian President Vladimir Putin. There are a number of Republicans in the House who probably agree with him on that. Plus, the entire Republican Party has been moving in an isolationist direction for some time. They don't really like foreign aid. But both Biden and Mitch McConnell, who are pro-Ukraine aid, are saying if the United States drops its support for Ukraine, it will give Putin exactly what he wants. Okay. Uh, Back to the southern border. Um, You know, I'm just thinking of recent news. Uh, You know, Texas governor has called in the Texas National Guard. That's complicated issues. So just, you know, from your point of view, what are the specific hangups there for the policy part of these talks? Well, there are a lot of hangups, but one of them is something called parole. This is an executive authority that presidents have to temporarily admit some classes of migrants. Republicans want to curtail this authority, and President Biden doesn't want to do that. Now, what's interesting about that is Republicans usually are the strong executive party, and they want the president to have all sorts of powers, but not when it's a Democratic president. Okay. And we have a couple minutes here. Let's circle back to the fact that, oh, and perhaps we should, you know, perhaps we should speed up. (laughs) He's yelling at us. Um, This Friday, we know. (laughs) He's gone. He's gone. He's disappearing. I don't, I hope not forever. I'm sorry about that. That's Buster. Buster, (laughs) the NPR dog. We kind of love Buster. Um, And it has a strong opinion. I wish I knew what it was. But um, this Friday, as we mentioned, is the deadline to sort out the government spending issues. How does that relate to this meeting that we've been talking about, about national security spending? Well, that's a really good question, and it's confusing because there's so many negotiations going on, so many deadlines. They're really not related. What the president and congressional leaders are talking about today at the White House is a supplemental national security spending bill that combines aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan with border money and policy. The bill that would keep the government open and avoid a shutdown that could happen as soon as Friday, that is a separate issue. A certain number of government departments will shut down on Friday if they don't pass this funding bill, and then the rest of the government would shut down about two weeks later. The latest that the uh, House Speaker has agreed to with the Senate is to kick the can down the road and pass a temporary funding bill. He has to get Democratic votes to pass that because his right wing doesn't like temporary funding bills. But the last time a speaker did this, passed a temporary funding bill with Democratic votes, Mm -hmm. he got booted. That's Mm -hmm. how former Speaker Kevin McCarthy lost his job. Mm -hmm. So House Speaker Mike Johnson is between the same rock and the same hard place as Kevin McCarthy about keeping the government open. NPR's Mara Liasson. 
Go be with Buster. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Always good to hear with Buster. Thanks. Coming up next, Robin explains how a case involving herring fishermen could upend the government's ability to regulate just about anything. There really are bigger fish to fry, it turns out. Stick around. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Numbers that explain the economy. We love them at The Indicator from Planet Money. And on Fridays, we discuss indicators in the news, like job numbers, spending, the cost of food, sometimes all three. So my indicator is about why you might need to bring home more bacon to afford your eggs. I'll be here all week. Wrap up your week and listen to The Indicator podcast from NPR. Open up a can of sardines and that fish, the herring, is at the centre of a battle at the Supreme Court today. The fish may be a red herring, you'll hear that a lot, because this issue is about more than cases brought by fishing companies who are appealing a federal rule that fishermen and women must pay for the onboard people who monitor their catch. Lober Bright Enterprises is the New Jersey-based fishing company behind one suit. Fisherman William Bright explained their side in a video on the company's site. The concerns that I have about paying for the monitoring is is that long term is it financially feasible because i'm on such small margins now i don't know if the quotas shrink am i going to be able to do this if the court sides with the fishermen it could dramatically reduce federal agency power throwing out a precedent called the chevron doctrine we'll have more on that in a minute but how big is this well the washington post and Merrimau draws parallels to the court's overturning of roe v wade Let's start with the fisherman's case. Ryan Mulvey is a lawyer at Cause of Action Institute. That's a conservative nonprofit law firm. He's worked with the fisherman. Ryan, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And to be clear, do the fishermen object to their being monitors, people on board calculating the catch, or was it just paying for them? The issue here is about who pays for them. Mm -hmm. The statute is clear that the agency has the authority to require that observers and monitors be placed on the boat. It's silent, uh, in our view, as to to who is supposed to pay for them. Okay, so now it, it brings us to this Chevron doctrine, because you say it's silent. Others have interpreted it as being ambiguous at the very best, and that the agency decided that, in fact, the fishermen would have to pay. But that kind of ambiguity is at the heart of this. This is a case that could overturn what's known as the Chevron Doctrine, which says when something is unclear in a law, which does happen a lot, it is the experts at federal agencies who should reasonably decide, not judges. So what you seem to be asking is that judges will be asked to make these kinds of decisions that experts usually make. Why would you want that? The decision 
as to whether NOAA or NIMS, uh, the Marines Fishery Service, has authority in the absence of an explicit direction from Congress to pass costs onto the regulated industry. I mean, that's a pure question of law. It's not the sort of decision that requires scientific or or technical expertise. Well, why why would it be the judge as opposed to? I'm based in New England. We have the feels for fishermen. You know how how tough things have been for them, but. Could they go to Congress? Could they go to the agency and and show that this was a hardship? I think they could, but I'm not sure that putting the burden on the fishermen uh, is the right approach. I mean, I think the the better way to look at it is if NIMS um, and the Fishery Management Council wanted to have more monitoring and they didn't have the money to do it, it's the agency that should have gone to Congress and asked for more appropriated money. I mean, ultimately, I think that's our argument is that there is a constitutional structure that ought to be followed. And Congress writes the law, the executive branch executes it, and then the judges tell us what the law is. And the Chevron doctrine we would uh, submit sort of mixes up that design. Okay. The Chevron doctrine, Mm -hmm. again, from the 1980s. Look, as you well know, uh, there's been a push to get rid of the doctrine for years. Is that what's happening here? I don't doubt that you care about the herring fishermen. But is this just a hope on the part of Cause of Action Institute, where you work, a conservative legal organization that gets millions of dollars from the conservative Koch network? Is this the case you think will help you turn over the Chevron doctrine once and for all? Well, this case did not start, nor was it designed to be a case to to overturn Chevron. Groups like ours and others uh, on the right, as you've pointed out, have recognized. I mean, Justice Scalia himself, who was originally a proponent of of Chevron deference, came to realize that after 40 years, the doctrine had sort of gotten away from itself and was leading to judicial abdication of the role of telling us what the law is and providing a way for agencies to aggrandize their power, often in an unchecked way. That's Ryan Mulvey, a lawyer at Cause of Action, working with fishermen on a case that today is before the Supreme Court. Some say uh, the conclusion could reshape federal agency power. Ryan, thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, let's bring in Kate Shaw at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. Uh, Professor, people might have sympathy for fishermen who don't mind monitors but don't want to pay for them. But isn't this really about who gets to decide if they have to? I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that the fishermen in this case are undoubtedly sympathetic parties. Um, And it may well be that the interpretation of the statute that the agency reached isn't the best interpretation. But I think it's really clear that there are much broader principles at stake in this case. The way Ryan was describing, you know, the constitutional role of each of our branches of government. Congress writes the laws, the executive branch applies the laws, and the courts interpret the laws. In the abstract, that's exactly right. The problem is that implementation inevitably involves interpretation. And since Chevron 40 years ago, and really since more like 100 years ago, courts have basically said the experts and agencies who work day in and day out with these statutes are way better positioned than judges to make those first-line interpretations. And so do tell us what was what's now called the Chevron deference. What was the case, briefly? 
Sure. So Chevron actually was about a fairly conservative interpretation reached by the Reagan administration's EPA. So there was a statute passed by Congress that required certain systems of emission reductions to be used in states. And the Reagan administration interpreted this statute in a way that was more favorable to industry than the regulation that had preceded it. And so an environmental group actually brought a challenge saying, well, this interpretation actually doesn't do enough to promote clean air. And so the court should throw it out because it's not the best interpretation of the statute passed by Congress. This was part of the Clean Air Act. And the Supreme Court actually said it's not totally clear what this phrase in this statute passed by Congress means. And we actually should look to what an expert agency, an agency that both has experience working in this area and also is politically accountable, right? Agency officials are not elected, but they work for a president who is elected. This was a conservative interpretation, and yet the doctrine has come to be really reviled in a lot of conservative legal circles. Well, and explain how that happened. How is it that we have this huge well-funded push against it. You know, in the first few years post-Chevron, it wasn't very controversial. And yet, and so Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, too, both conservative stalwarts, were both real defenders of Chevron uh, initially. And there was this gradual effort, and I'm not totally sure how exactly causation runs, but there's absolutely been a well-funded effort to limit legal doctrines that are understood in different ways to give power to agencies. Well, I'm wondering, I'm just going to make a suggestion that it could possibly be that over the decades we've become far more aware of, for instance, the impact of humankind on the environment with the awareness of climate change. And so perhaps agencies have had more muscle and perhaps that's what's caught the attention of conservatives. But well, what are the possibilities now? Anne Maramau of the Washington Post drew parallels between the court possibly overturning Chevron and the court overturning another major precedent, Roe v. Wade. Do you agree? And why would that be? You know, it's hard to compare the two, but I do think that the Solicitor General in the federal government's brief in this case described overturning Chevron as something that would create a convulsive shock in the legal system. And I don't think that is hyperbole or overstated. I think because agencies and regulated parties and even Congress for decades have all operated on the assumption that this is how our government works. So I do think that it would have enormous implications and it does kind of intersect with things like there is a case about the FDA's approval of the abortion drug mifepristone. It's not a Chevron case, but it is a case that takes real aim at expert agencies and their power to mm. decide important questions. And I thought that the you know hypothesis that maybe the fact that agencies are going to be the frontline responders to the threats of climate change is a very significant part of this effort. Um, and whatever the court does here will have enormous consequences for government's ability to actually respond to the climate crisis. Um, but I think it's not limited to climate. We're talking about financial regulation and the regulation of food and drugs and their safety and efficacy. So I just think the consequences are truly seismic depending on what the court does here. Kate Shaw, professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania Carey Law School. Professor, Kate, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Well, whatever happens with that case, environmentalists in Louisiana say that state already has too much leeway when it comes to regulations on the oil and gas industry. After the break, Deepa Fernandez hears how the latest front in their fight is a relatively new industry, carbon capture and sequestration. That's coming up next.
Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterfly have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. The state of Louisiana just got more power to fight climate change. In December, the EPA gave Louisiana permission to approve the storage wells that are necessary to lock planet-warming carbon deep underground. Critics had complained that the permitting process for carbon storage was too complicated and slow. The underground wells are part of an emerging industry to avoid the worst effects of climate change. But local activists and scientists are concerned... Layla Yunus is a senior staff writer with our editorial partners at Grist, and she's with us for more. Layla, hi. Hi. So the state of Louisiana can now approve wells that store carbon dioxide deep underground. How do they work? So the way it works, basically, it's kind of a long process where you start in an actual industrial facility and there's a technology that you add to the smokestacks of these facilities that capture the emissions, separate out the carbon dioxide, pressurize it into a liquid, pipe it underground to these wells where it's then injected um, underground for, as you said, about a mile underground. Okay. And this is a big issue for the carbon storage industry. We've been reporting on this too. In November, we spoke with Shashank Samala, the CEO of a carbon removal company called Heirloom. Now, this company is storing most of the carbon it removes from the atmosphere in concrete because the permitting process for underground wells has been too onerous. EPA and the Department of Energy and many other folks are working on getting all of these wells certified so that the industry can use this infrastructure to put the CO2 underground. A couple of years ago, I would, I would have said, hey, we need to go faster. And I still say we need to go faster. But it's, it's awesome to see in the, just in the last few months pro- how much progress we've seen in getting those wells permitted. So, so carbon storage is a big part of the Biden administration's climate goals. Why has it been so tough to get underground wells approved, permitted? Quite simply because this is a very complex type of well and not one that the agency has ever permitted before. And so there's different types of modeling that are required um, to ensure the safety of these wells. For example, if uh, with a fracking well, you're injecting fluid underground to get gas to come up. 
but with CO2 storage, you're injecting gas permanently. So you're creating high pressure conditions. And in order to prevent kind of migration later uh, or, or other, you know, safety concerns, there's a lot of modeling and preparation that has to go into that process. Uh, yeah, and, and even though this is new, safety is, is, is not some abstract concern. I'm thinking about February 2020, Mississippi, where a pipeline carrying carbon dioxide burst. Tell us how that factors into concerns about putting these wells in Louisiana. What are the real risks here? Right. So in Mississippi, when that pipe burst, you had over 100 people that were unconscious and had to be hospitalized. Um, and of course, that was from a pipeline. And what we're talking about in Louisiana at the moment being permitted are actually the wells themselves. But of course, to get the carbon dioxide into the well, you have to pipe it over. So uh, there there are real concerns about you know any leaks that might occur uh, through the pipeline and then obviously in the wells themselves. Uh, mm. The EPA has said that it's going to require... Um, uh, certain, you know, geologies of the areas to to support these types of wells and that there's going to be testing and monitoring after the injection of the carbon dioxide to make sure that the conditions are safe. Uh, the Department of Transportation has said that it's going to uh, increase, uh, strengthen standards for CO2 pipelines and solicit research uh, for strengthening pipeline safety. Uh, but it sort of remains to be seen, you know, what those risks truly are. Mm, and one of the things that should be noted that you point out in your reporting is is oftentimes these new or, or more potentially dangerous projects land up in low-income communities and communities of colour. I want to ask you, though, about environmental groups. They don't love carbon capture and storage because they say it gives polluters the opportunity to keep burning fossil fuels. And in fact, oil and gas companies are excited about this news. Why are they applauding an expedited process for these wells? Oil and gas companies see this as an opportunity to extend the longevity of their fossil fuel infrastructure. Uh, it's also a way of attracting investors that are increasingly concerned with the carbon footprints of their portfolios. So those are you know, some of the reasons why you're seeing um, companies more in favor of carbon capture. And then you're also seeing industry-friendly states like Louisiana kind of jump on board and, and mm. decide that you know, they're interested in pioneering this process. Yeah, possibly also a way for these companies to stay economically viable, I imagine. How quickly could we see action here? Like how early could these wells start operating? Well, first you have the next several months in which the EPA is going to be shifting over its uh, all the permits um, to the state. And then the permitting process will take, you know, at least uh, uh, a year. And then after that, you have to actually build the infrastructure. So we're looking at at least several years okay. until you actually have a CO2 injection in Louisiana. Layla Eunice is a staff writer with our editorial partners at Gris. Thank you, Layla. Thank you. That's our show. It comes from the team behind Here and Now, from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Hafsa Qureshi, Jill Ryan, and Gabrielle Healy. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Pedro Dowd, Micaela Rodriguez, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Caleb Green. Mike Moschetto also wrote our theme music, along with Max Liebman and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carleen Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you tomorrow.
Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. The Bullseye podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun.